I often say, just when we've shared that last five or ten minutes of prayer and blessing, that I don't know a more cogent Dharma talk. You know, that... Uh, <coughs> that the, the Buddha saying that life is suffering with... Uh, it uh, has so many levels. It, it, it certainly has the level of the extra suffering that we create in the mind um, when we insist that things be different from how they are. But there is actually also be, before that level of um, sort of um, extra suffering or avoidable suffering or suffering that we could be liberated from, there is really the level of dukkha dukkha. There's just, it's very hard to be a person. The things happen to everybody. You know, when I listen to what's happening to this one or that one, sometimes it's a constellation of things happening that I, that I can understand but don't have exact first-hand knowledge of. And sometimes I, sometimes I do. Uh, The situation this morning, and I, I realized that uh, when I hear something that I know that's been part of my personal experience, you think, ah, oh, more than something that's not. It's not that, that everything isn't touching. My father's second wife developed Alzheimer's when she was 50, which is very young. And it's a complication because Alzheimer's is always a complication. It's a complication when you look young and you look fine and, uh, and you feel fine, your body's good, but you know that you're not right. And and I think about that uh, when I was, when I, early on in my teaching career, I taught some at Dominican College and I, I, I realize I often talk about it, and for the 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 bulk of their students are are quite young. They're eighteen, nineteen years old. They've just finished high school. Uh, they live in Marin County. They haven't had lives of privation, largely. And uh, Buddhism sounds to them gloomy. But I'm not sure that it, it's. Uh, I, I once said that to my. Uh, to my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, I said, everything is so sad. Uh, responding to the fact that everything changes and has a, a period of flourishing and a period of deteriorating. I said, it's so sad. He said, it's not sad, Sylvia, it's just true. But that doesn't make it not poignant, you know, uh, not really poignant. It is true that, and to be able to say, uh, really, with a, uh, a heart that doesn't long terribly for it to be different. This is what I've got. I think the heart longs terribly. I don't know that it's possible in relational lives that we live to be able to say with complete ease, well, that's the way it is. I think we struggle with personal loss tremendously. And I think that that's part of the teaching as well, that the recognizing that because we are very much relational beings and in a, in a culture 
that very much values personal relationship. It pains us when we're di distant for some reason from people in whom we are emotionally invested. It's that kind of a culture. And to be able to say, you know, I know that the end of suffering would be possible if I just wasn't attached to having it otherwise. But I am attached to having it otherwise. And so I'm suffering. And that what that, what that, what that makes so clear to me is that not that I'm a wrong meditator or I'm not a good spiritual practitioner, but that really the, the, uh, the fruit of practice is not equanimity, but compassion. Because I think that's true of most people. That uh, the things that we say at, at, at funerals, uh, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, which is a way of th saying things pass, they're true. But they're, they're the, the things that are the most painful in human life. I spoke, um, spoke on the telephone just yesterday with a friend of mine in New York who I talked to once a year, maybe once every two years. It's a woman I went to college with who's lived in New York all of her life. And I meet her every five years at college reunions. We're always very pleased to see each other. But our lives don't run in the same circle, so we don't talk in between. And for complicated reasons, she had heard something about what I did. Anyway, she called me, and uh, she said, this is whoever she, our name. And we talked for a while. And five years ago, this person's 35-year-old daughter was quite suddenly killed in a car accident on a holiday in Europe, driving on a, driving on a mountain road, 35 years old and the best of health. And she said, you know, I'm about what, what's going on in your life now? She said, just now, it's just past five years, and I've decided to clean up her room. And I haven't been able to go in there for five years. She, uh, she was a professor. She taught classics in three different universities. Room was full of books and papers and lesson plans and projects. And she said, I couldn't go, I couldn't deal with that stuff. But five years passed, and she said, listen, you have to do it someday. You know, you just have to, uh, I, I, was, I, was, I was charmed by it because it, uh, it didn't sound Buddhist, it didn't sound sophisticated. She said, listen, it's five years, it's time to do it. You just have to suck it up and do it. It never gets all right. You know, and I think that, that that's, a, that's a, a bluntly stated wisdom. It never gets all right. And you do it every, anyway. You don't leave it a hundred years. And you leave it until you can until you can do it. She said, I'm very fortunate. I have my woman who comes and helps me clean, who I've known for years, comes once a week, and I've known her for years. My friend is not that agile in her body anymore. And so she's doing it with me. And um, she knew my daughter. And she says to me, listen, you don't need that. You can let it go. You can let it go. So I think about friendship and friendship and um, uh, uh, honor and trustworthiness, uh, honoring what's the truth in you when you're ready to do something. I've just restarted a friendship recently with a person who, you know, you lie, you're friends for a while and then your lives go different paths and 
for a long time you're not so close, and then one reason or another you get back together close again, and you're having a good time. And this person said to me, you know, I've missed you. We haven't been together in a long time. But then here we are back again. We'd hurt each other's feelings a long time ago, so everybody kind of stayed away a little bit. But it took a long time, and then we got over the hurt feelings, and you're back together. That, you know, and it becomes so clear in that story that things mend in their own time, and that there's a really a pleasure in closing the circle and saying, well, this is okay. I think that probably... I was going to talk about generosity and morality today in a more formal way. Um, and it hasn't turned out to be a formal way. But I think that the, the effect of generosity, which I think is a form of morality, I think when you think about generosity is, you know, is letting go of things, or, or in, when it's material things, um, helping where material help is needed. But I think about it, it's the moral thing when people don't have enough or when a cause that has to be taken care of, or something needs to be done to uh, check in. Actually, in some, I, I want to be able to tell this very briefly, I'm still murking my way through the moral molecule, and I, I, I can't tell you about it yet, because I've underlined practically every other line, so I have to be able to uh, make it down a little bit more. But it's talking about not only oxytocin makes you feel closer to people, but testosterone keeps you further away from people. Testosterone actually blocks oxytocin so that macho testosterone is more, uh, more uh, present in males than in females. And in uh, young and virile alpha type males in, in tribes or troops or groups of people, Testosterone uh, dampens oxytocin, and the writer is pointing out that in, a, in an earlier time in the history of evolution, that would have been a good thing, because if you're the young male in a tribal situation, you have to go out and kill bears to, or deer or something to feed your family. There's no time to have an attack of compassion. That bear might be somebody's mother, or you know, the, what, what will the baby bears eat? It, it doesn't serve the tribe to start to think of the ramifications. You have to get that bear because otherwise your children won't eat. So how the body is rigged to dampen it, and it talks about how uh, um, a culture grows up around the uh, sanctioning certain roles, not sanctioning other roles. Alpha males can get away with a, being a little bit bossy and tough and uh, maybe pushing people around a little bit because they're the ones that the tribe is counting on to go get the proper amount of bears to sustain them. So, okay, that's their way. It says there's a, there's a cultural response to what they call freeloaders, people who are not out there fighting the bears, that that's also a recognized thing that's somehow built into social structures is uh, the idea of doing your part. That, that in, in cultural groups, people know who's not doing their part. Your, your part might not be out with the bears, but then your part is doing something else. And there's a sense, uh, and ostracizing those people from the group who aren't <coughs> pulling their weight. It's very interesting to think that, uh, you know, 
I guess that we think about as human beings have developed, we've uh, developed these, uh, what we think of as human characteristics and virtues and morality and uh, uh, as good ideas or as uh, the presence of the divine in us, which is lovely to think about. Um, but uh, also to think about they may have developed evolutionarily so that we continue as a species, so that, so that we don't kill each other, and so that certain, certain cultural uh, sense of these are the protectors, these are the nurturers, these are this, these are that. It might not be that people make a decision to do that. It might all be their, um, their hormones. It's a sweet book to read if you want to read it because they do, um, they do tests uh, with uh, uh, testosterone levels and oxytocin levels with, uh, mostly with college students, and you, you go into college, and college students, he says, always can use a little extra pocket money. So they see an ad, psych department needs, uh, people willing to do two-hour computer test. You get paid $25 for doing it or something. And so people show up, and they have to do tests. Uh, I'll read you just the beginning of one test, because it's, it's the, the trust game. So this is a trust game is the research tool. It's most common in, uh, in, uh, uh, in the research on this. This is the beginning. Uh, you agree, you, see, you, be, you, be, you agree to do this, you come to a room, you sit down in a small cubicle with a computer, you read the online instructions, which confirm that just for showing up, you now have $10 on account, which is yours to keep. But you may soon receive more. That's because the computer is going to ask some other randomly chosen and anonymous player, let's call him Fred, if he would like to transfer some or all of his $10 to another anonymous player, which happens to be you. Why should Fred do that? Because according to the rules that you and Fred have just spent a few minutes reading, any amount that he gives you will triple in value the moment it hits your account. By increasing, but increasing your wealth wouldn't be entirely altruistic on Fred's part, because the rules also say that if he transfers money to you, then you will be asked if you want to give some of your multiplied by three money back to him. The question is, would you? Can you be trusted to reciprocate? The beauty of this test is there's no social pressure to be on your best behavior because the computers mask who's doing what. Even the experimenters know the individuals only by code number. So master of the universe or Mother Teresa, the moral model that you choose to follow, in giving something or nothing back is entirely up to you. Even when you're paid at the end, no one else knows how much money you took except yourself. Let's say Fred takes $2 from the initial 10 and just for, he got for showing up and he transfers it to you. His $2 becomes six as soon as it hits your account, which means that now you've got $16 and Fred is down to eight. So you're doing pretty well. You don't know exactly who you have to thank, but you know that you've picked up an additional $6 and that an anonymous benefactor at one of the computer terminals in the room is responsible. You also know that your benefactor's decision was based on expectation that you would be decent about it and share back some of the wealth. After all, it's really no skin off your nose to flip back a couple of bucks. It seems only decent, like tipping the waitress who brings your coffee. That's what decent people do, right? 
Let's say you decide to give $3 back to Fred. That leaves you with $13. Brings Fred up to 11 A go-ahead of three for you and one for him, which isn't much, but still better than when we both started. Still, think again. Then again, you're perfectly within your rights, if you so choose, to walk away with your original 10 plus a $6 bonus Fred made possible without so much as a thanks, chump, as the amount is being transferred increases, the potential payoff becomes more interesting. If Fred is really seriously trusting or reckless and besides to bet the farm by giving you all of his original $10, that amount will triple into a $30 windfall, which pushes your $10 bankroll up to 40 If you're scrupulously fair-minded, you'll split the new total with your anonymous partner and you'll both walk away with $20 or twice what would you have earned. But here's the $64,000 question. If you're under no obligation to be trustworthy and nobody knows whether you are or not, why would you ever reward trust from a stranger with a reciprocal gesture that takes real money out of your pocket? If no one's ever going to know, what's the problem with being a greedy bastard and screwing the other guy? <laughs> well, according to the economic theory that's held swayed over most of the 20th century, that's exactly what you should do. Economists have fallen in love with a concept called rational self-interest, which assumes that each individual makes decisions on the basis of personal advantage and the basis of the rational calculation as to exactly where the advantage lies. And then it goes on and on to say what actually happens. But the interesting part, the, 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 the particular part of that, uh, can you think about what you would do, by the way? If someone said, okay, you can give all or some of your $10. I'd probably give all, because I think to myself, I don't have it anyway, you know, they came in without it. So it's monopoly money. I'm just playing with somebody else's money. It doesn't matter. It's not because I'm a good person, but what the hell? You know, let's play for higher stakes. Uh, the thing that, that this guy is doing is taking blood samples on these people and discovering that when they have been generous, their oxytocin level goes up and they feel better than the people who are not so generous. That it actually feels good to be generous. And so the thinking about whether it feels good uh, because you feel, I don't need any, I don't need this, not my money anyway, and I'm not, you know, I'm not poverty-stricken, or it feels good to be benevolent. Somebody here is so thrilled because I've given them $10, which turned into 30 What makes you feel good? And... Uh, would you feel bad if I, if somebody gave me $10, which turned into $30, and I've now got $40 in my account, would I take the money and run? No one would ever know. I, you know, I don't, would you? I don't, I think, I don't think I'd feel, who would? No, who would? Nobody's going to say. <laughs> what, you, I mean, you're not going to say, yes, yes, I'd take the money and run. But uh, can you imagine that, yeah. I would have liked that money. Yeah. And at 64, I don't need any. You know, it's yeah. Just, I think different times of your life, yeah. you experience generosity and holding on to things differently. So the, the part that I really wanted to um, get, to, get to understanding enough so I could tell it to you 
is that generosity somehow hormonally feels good for you, that your oxytocin level goes up with generosity. If you do a, de a good deed, if you help somebody across the street, you're, you probably feel good. That when you do something that is not self-serving or not self-preoccupied, it probably stands for the fact that you're all right in that moment. You're not worried. You can take care of somebody else. And then you feel good about it. It's interesting to think that goodness is wired in. Anyway, I see that we really soon need to leave, but what was I? I'm going to tell you one more thing about this. Now, I, I, the, the other two things maybe don't exactly fit, but in this way, that when we are generous and we connect with somebody, we make them our friend. When we make them our friend, so to speak, quote-unquote friend, when we make them our friend, we draw them nearer to us, so to speak, a hypothetical near. Um, I, someone sent me an article yesterday on the Internet about uh, 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 in, a certain, in a certain graduate school in Israel in... Uh, in Bar Ilan, as a, as a certain school, there are 400 students studying Yiddish, which is really the language, it's an arcane language, it's a language of uh, European Jews. A quarter of them are Palestinians, Arabs. And they have decided, they interview them, why are you studying Yiddish? Say, well, you know, we're going to be living in a country with them, and I feel... Like I want to meet, move, I want to understand their culture a little bit. It's a beautiful musical language, and I'd like to know it. There's people saying I want to feel closer to these people, and I think to myself that that's that's first of all, it's very touching to me, and also so confirming that people want to be comfortable. They don't want to feel that they're living with enemies. They're going to make them, you know, bring them close to them. Um, it's the opposite of a lifelong enmity, you know. Um, many of you know that I, I go to as much opera as I could. I just saw the Capulets and the Montagues. And uh, did anybody see that? One of the early lines is they meet each other and they say, the Montagues are coming to town. They want to make up with us and be finished with this, re with this revenge. And they sing out, no, no, we've taken, uh, we've taken a vow to hate them for the rest of our lives. And you know that the whole thing is a doomed project from that. But I think, it, I think that, the, that those kinds of stories endure because they're, um, what do you call it? Uh, they're ways that we, we teach people in generations about what works and what doesn't work. They're morality tales. Look what these people did and look what happened. Like, like Ferdinand the Bull is a morality tale. Ferdinand wouldn't fight. And he ended up okay. So and so else, they did something else. He ended up not okay. Ferdinand is Ferdinand is is almost uh, Ferdinand was born in 1936, I think, that it was written, and people are still reading it. And it's the bull that refuses to go to go to war, and people resonate with that. So I think they're like fundamental truths. But the, the, what was really interesting to me was reading that it's wired into our neurophysiology, makes us feel good and safe. When we do metta practice, we start by saying, may I feel safe, may I feel contented. 
That's really what people want to feel, safe and contented, more than rich or I think more than anything else. Those words, you are okay. You, you can be okay. The words that first responders say when they show up at an accident, they're taught to say, you can be okay. No matter what terrible thing they find, you're going to be okay because then the mind relaxes. I think what the Buddha is teaching is that we have a way in our lives to be okay regardless of what happens. We could be sad or disappointed or really grieved, but okay. So we're way late, but there we go. Uh, I'll be back. Um, we did it backwards. Did you mind if we did it backwards? It just worked out better backwards. And I'm glad to know who's here. So I'm not here next week, but you can all be thinking of me next week. Thinking of Sylvia, who's up there sitting. May her sitting be going well. Uh, and I'll be back the week after that. And then all the way through until, mostly all the way through until Thanksgiving, most of the month of November. Anybody who has a sudden urge either to sign the scroll and join or to talk to Serena about signing the scroll and joining, how many people are still thinking about joining? Well, you can't put up your hands because then you'll see. That, that I know who hasn't done it yet. Honestly, I don't look at the list. I assume you've all joined. The reason I assumed you've all joined is when we went around and we said, what are you doing here and how long have you been here? Most people said, I'm here 10 years, 5 years, 8 years, 4 years, but I come here regularly. It's, if you come here regularly, you see that the building is falling apart. We need to build a new building. It's not a, it's not a whim. If, if you come here regularly, you need a new building, so you've got to pay for it. So everybody's doing their part. We should have a march in when that building gets built. <laughs> Honestly, when that building gets built, I don't like to do anything that, 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 that puts some people in and makes the in-group and the out-group. But honestly, when that building is finished, we have a ribbon cutting. The Sangha of Thousands of Buddhas ought to have a parade in. It's their building, don't you think? Don't you think? It's, it's not nice. The other people will feel bad, so I probably won't be able to do it. But we should do it, and you should be in it. Huh? No, I don't know. No, 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 no. no. It, it would hurt my feelings because some people wouldn't be in the parade. I can't do anything. So. But they should be there. So anyway, I, I just said not to say should. Ah, I didn't mention October. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.